1: Dave Nies knocked on his daughter Skylar's bedroom door on Friday morning in the summer of 2012, telling her to get up. He wanted her to give him a ride to work so she could use his car. She wasn't actually supposed to be driving by herself as she only had a learner's permit, but it was easier to have her drive him to work and then use the car to drive herself to her job at Wendy's fast food restaurant. She was only allowed to drive to work and then she was supposed to come straight home afterward. He knocked on her bedroom door again, but got no answer. The door was locked, so he got something to use to jimmy the lock and opened it. Inside, her bed was empty and she was nowhere to be found. Dave called Skylar's cell phone over and over again, leaving voicemails to call him back. Then he called his wife, Mary, who was already at work and asked if she knew where Skylar was. Mary suggested that she went shopping with some friends, but Dave told her her bedroom door was locked. Mary shrugged it off assuming she accidentally hit the lock when she left. Mary was able to keep Dave from completely panicking, but he still wanted to look for her, so he told his employer that he needed the day off and began trying to think of where Skyler could be. While outside on the balcony having a cigarette collecting his thoughts, he noticed a little black stool sitting against the wall at the back of the apartment complex. He went outside to investigate and that's when he noticed that the window to Skylar's bedroom was open just a crack and the screen was out. It had been leaned up against the side of the building. It was then that he realized that his daughter had snuck out of the house the previous night. She had left the stool outside to use to give herself a boost back into the window. Obviously, when you find her daughter is snuck out, the first person you want to talk to is her best friend. Dave called Sheila and asked if she had seen Skylar, but she said no. She admitted to having talked to her at about midnight, but that was the last she had heard from her. By now, Mary had left work and returned home, and not long after, their home phone rang and it was the manager at Wendy's, letting Mary know that Skylar hadn't shown up for work. Skylar was a responsible teenager. She had a good relationship with her parents and didn't get in much trouble. Dave had checked the odometer on the car after Skylar had used it with instructions to come straight home after work, and he never found there to be extra miles on it. She wasn't known to skip school or ditch work, so her being a no-call no-show at work was out of place. Right after hanging up the phone, it rang again. This time, it was Sheila calling back to admit that she had lied. She told Mary that she had picked Skylar up at about 11pm and they went joyriding. She claimed that she dropped her off at the end of her block about 45 minutes later. Sheila and her mother, Tara, came over to the apartment and with Mary, they walked along the block, knocking on doors, asking if anybody saw anything. Dave had called 911 and he stayed home waiting for an officer to arrive. When the three women returned... Dave was talking to Star City Police Officer Bob McCauley, and it was then that Mary remembered that the apartment building had recently installed surveillance cameras. The whole group went to the apartment manager and explained the situation, asking if they could check the footage. The manager, Jim Gaston, was happy to help. As Jim scrolled through the footage, they saw Skylar pop out from the side of the building at about 12.30am and get into the back of a vehicle. The image wasn't clear enough to note the exact make and model of the vehicle, but the adults all agreed that it looked like an SUV. Mary confirmed that Sheila had picked Skylar up at 11, and the girl said yes. Sheila drove a silver Toyota Camry, and they didn't think that it was the vehicle in the video. At this point, it was believed that Sheila had picked up Skylar at 11 p.m., drove around for about 45 minutes, and then dropped her back off at home. Then, Skylar snuck back out at 12:30 and got into somebody else's vehicle never to return. For months, authorities based their investigation on these details, but the problem was none of that was true. The truth was, Skylar fell victim to a threat that was much closer to home. This is Monsters. <laughs> Skyler Niece was the only child of Dave and Mary Niece. Dave and Mary met in Morgantown, West Virginia, while Dave was working as a DJ. Mary had seen Dave around and had developed a bit of a crush on him, but she never acted on it. One night, Dave got jumped while walking to his car and it was Mary who found him and took him to the hospital. Fortunately, Dave didn't suffer any major injuries, but he did meet the woman who had become his wife. That wouldn't come until after Skyler was born on February 10th, 1996. Mary was hesitant to get married, but she and Skyler did move in with Dave. It seems they eventually got married at some point after that. In November of 1999, Mary had just dropped Skyler off at daycare and was on her way to work when a lumber truck missed a turn, slammed on the brakes, threw it in reverse, and started backing into her car. She hit the horn, but there was no time for her to get out of the way. The truck started going up over the hood of her car, and when the airbag went off, it broke her arm. She had two operations and a metal plate in her arm, and the insurance company paid them a small settlement. It was enough for them to take their first family vacation together, traveling to the beach in Ocean City, Maryland. When Skylar got into preschool, she met another only child named Morgan Lawrence and they quickly became best friends. Morgan was from a more well-off family than Skylar was but they didn't seem to notice the difference. They promised to be each other's bridesmaids at their weddings since neither of them had sisters to fill the spot. In first grade, Skylar met Daniel Havater who would end up being one of her closest friends. Dave Niece would go to Daniel's house occasionally to do handyman work since his father was overseas working as a military contractor. Dave would bring Skyler with him and her and Daniel would play. Skyler's early life was as normal as any other childhood. During the school year, Skylar would go to Morgan's house after school until Mary got off work. In the summertime, Skylar would go to the Shack neighborhood house in Morgantown. It was a community center that had activities for children, a pool, and summer camp programs. It was there that Skylar met another post-second grader named Sheila Eddy. Mary had actually been friends with Sheila's mother, Tara, when they were both teenagers. Skylar would spend much of her time at Sheila's house during the summers. Sheila was born on September 28, 1995 in Blacksville, West Virginia. Her father, Greg Eddy, was in a car accident when Sheila was only two and he suffered brain damage that left him disabled. This essentially left Tara a single mother and wanting a better life for her only child, she went back to college to become an accountant. Sheila's family said she eventually became overly focused on getting attention, but she had kind of lost her father when she was two and then again shortly after when her parents got divorced. Those kind of events can affect children and make them seek attention in less healthy ways. When Tara began dating a new man, Jim Clendenin, Sheila began fighting with her mother more. It's hard for a child to see a parent move on from their other parent, but eventually she warmed up to Jim due to his generosity. Jim was a coal miner and he made very good money. He had no problem giving Sheila anything she wanted. When Tara and Jim got married, they moved into a townhome outside of Morgantown and it made Sheila start attending university high school with her best friend Skylar. She set up her school schedule to be identical to Skylar's and the two became inseparable. When Skylar wasn't home, she was either with Sheila, Morgan, or Daniel. The problem was that most of her other friends didn't really like Sheila. They complained that she was mean and controlling. Skylar's parents also noticed that Sheila wasn't really the best influence on their daughter. Of course, if there was any choice for Skylar to make between Sheila and her other friends, Sheila would make sure she came out on top. By the end of the school year, Skylar's relationship with her other friends had taken a backseat to Sheila. The following school year, Skylar and Sheila met a fellow student, Rachel Schoeff. Rachel was born on June 10, 1996, in Morgantown, West Virginia. Rusty Shof had a son with his first wife who unfortunately died of cancer. Soon after, too soon according to some of his family members, he met and married Patricia. They ended up having a daughter, Rachel, with Rusty owning and operating a clothing boutique in town and Patricia staying home with the baby. When Rachel was four years old, Rusty's store went out of business and her parents got a divorce. After that, it's said that Rachel was friends with the more well-off kids in high school, so she didn't meet Skylar and Sheila until their freshman year. Rachel was more well-liked than Sheila. Rachel was known to do volunteer work for the Special Olympics and was friendly to everyone. She was a better match for Skylar, who was active in environmentalism and helping fight for the underprivileged. Schuyler was an honor student who had dreams of going to law school to become a criminal defense lawyer. It would be Sheila and Rachel that would grow to have a special connection, though. The three girls spent all of their time together, but their friendship was peppered with bickering and all-out fights. It's not uncommon for young women to display the stress of their teenage years by taking it out on each other, and they usually end up making up and moving on, which Schuyler, Sheila, and Rachel did often. It wasn't until August 16, 2011 that their friendship took a drastic turn. Skylar and Sheila stayed the night at Rachel's house, and after Patricia went to bed, they started to drink from a bottle of vodka they had procured. Once they were good and drunk, they began taking photos of each other kissing. After that, it's said that Skylar took pictures and might have even videoed Sheila and Rachel removing their clothes and having sex with each other. When they were finished, all three girls went to sleep in Rachel's bed, but Sheila wanted to be alone with Rachel, so she told Skylar to move. That upset Skylar and she began having a loud fight with Sheila, which ultimately woke up Patricia. The mother told the girls to be quiet and made Rachel go back to her room with her to sleep. Well, that just left the two girls who were fighting alone in Rachel's room and they continued fighting. A different friend said that this was the story that Skyler told her afterward, and Mary would later confirm that Skyler had written about it in her diary. After the fight, tensions between Skyler and Sheila were high. Skyler took to Twitter to vent her frustrations as many people do. Many of the tweets are just high school drama, but when Skyler tweeted, quote, I'd tell the whole school all the shit I have on everyone, which is a lot. Hashtag, if I could get away with it. Skylar would have been the only person who knew that Sheila and Rachel had a relationship that was not platonic. In hindsight, many people believe that Sheila and Rachel took this tweet as a threat that Skylar wanted to out them to the school.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps>
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for
1: details. When school started in the fall of 2011, Sheila and Rachel began joking to other students about killing Skylar. Only they weren't really joking. Sheila and Rachel began making comments about how much they hated Skylar, and then one day they asked a boy in one of their classes if he knew how to dispose of a body. The boy suggested they watch the TV show Breaking Bad to get ideas. In her biology class, Sheila asked her teacher what kind of acid would be best to dispose of a body. Other students say the teacher yelled at her and Rachel and sent them to the office, but the teacher claims he never even heard them ask the question. One of the students that did hear them told Skylar about it later. She explained that they would often play morbid games like would you rather or which way would you rather die? One girl would ask another, quote, how would you rather die, drown or shot? Then the other gave their answer. Skylar brushed off the warning as the other girls just playing games. Biology was the only class that Skylar didn't have with Sheila and Rachel, so in her next class she asked the two about what she had been told. They denied it and told her she was paranoid from smoking too much pot. As the school year went on, Skylar continued to express hatred for Sheila, but she also continued to hang out with her. It's possible that the fact that Sheila had a car was motivation to stay friends with her. It's also apparent through social media messages that Skylar doesn't seem to have much ill will toward Rachel, at least not at first. It seems that Skylar blamed Sheila for creating the rift in their friendship. Her bitterness is focused on Sheila, but she continues to remain friends despite the tension. It seems as though Skylar's feelings for Rachel weren't reciprocated, though. Not long before the school year ended, Rachel saw one of her old friends in the school library and vented to her about how much she hated Skylar. When the friends suggested that she just not be friends with her, Rachel said she would blackmail her and Sheila and tell all of their secrets if they stopped being friends with her. Then Rachel said, quote, "At this point, I wouldn't mind if she died." By the summer of 2012, it was evident that Skylar's life was becoming less and less dominated by drama between her and Sheila and Rachel. Her posts on social media about the two girls were becoming fewer and farther between. She was spending more time with other people, reconnecting with old friends like Morgan and making new ones. During her sophomore year, she had become friends with a senior named Amarette, who was going through a similar issue with two girls that had once been her best friends. Skylar had joined Sheila's family on a summer trip to the beach almost every year since they met and in June of 2012, despite their friendship being almost completely over, she still went with them. Not surprisingly, the two fought the entire time. There are rumors that Sheila tried to engage in sexual activity with Skylar, but nothing is confirmed. Whatever happened, it created a massive fight between the girls, and when Sheila got home, she told Rachel that they needed to get rid of Skylar permanently. At the beginning of June, Sheila and Rachel began planning to kill Skylar. They picked knives as their murder weapons. They researched the best way to kill someone with a knife. They discussed using acid to dispose of the body and even finding a farm with pigs. But they decided that burying her would be the most practical. Smart. You don't want to complicate things when you're planning to stab your teenage friend to death. On the evening of July 5th, Sheila convinced Skylar to sneak out of her house and go joyriding with her and Rachel. Skylar longed to get back to a place where she and Sheila were before Rachel came along. Their friendship was one of the most important things to her and she really wanted to work things out. She likely agreed to go out with the other girls that night in an effort to renew their friendship and put the negativity aside. Sheila and Rachel were looking to end things for good. At about 12.30am on the 6th, Skylar climbed out of her window and leaned the window screen against the building. She had taken a small stool out of her closet and set it outside so she would have a way to get back up to her window when she returned. As far as she knew, she would return. Sheila drove to a secluded area where they would sometimes go to smoke pot. Before the trip, Sheila and Rachel had put paper towels, bleach, rags, clean clothes, and a shovel into the trunk of Sheila's silver Toyota Camry. They each had a knife on them, hidden in their sweatshirts. They drove out to the spot where they knew that they were going to kill their friend. They had brought the tools and they knew that that's exactly what they were going to do that night. It was all planned out. It was all premeditated. When they arrived at the spot, Sheila pulled over and they all began walking down a gravel road. When they got to where they were going to smoke a joint, either Sheila's lighter didn't work or she said she forgot it. It's been reported both ways. So Skylar said she'd go back to the car and get hers. When she turned around, Sheila and Rachel counted to three and then attacked Skylar. Skylar tried to run but was tackled and the other girls continued to stab her repeatedly. At one point, Skylar managed to get Rachel's knife and cut her ankle. It wasn't enough though and soon Skylar succumbed to her wounds. Sheila and Rachel stood over her and watched as she took her final breath. They retrieved the shovel and tried to dig a hole next to a nearby creek but the dirt was too hard and rocky so they gave up. They covered Skylar's body with rocks and branches then they used the other supplies to clean up. They stripped off their bloody clothes and put them in a garbage bag. They used the rags and bleach to clean themselves before putting on clean clothes and leaving the scene. It was sometime between 3.30 and 4 a.m. Sheila was satisfied with what they had done. She wanted Skylar dead and the secrets she knew to be sent with her to her grave. Sheila always got what she wanted and this time was no different. Rachel, on the other hand, didn't handle the murder well. That same night, Rachel would write in her diary that only God knew what had happened. She would go on to write about her frustration with all the lies and to beg God for forgiveness for what she had done. Where Sheila seemed to have no problem taking the life of a person who was once her best friend, Rachel was on a downward spiral in her own head, only made worse by having to act like nothing was wrong. When Dave realized that Skylar had snuck out and not returned home later on the 6th, he called the police. In the room that housed the surveillance equipment, Jim Gaston found the image of Skylar walking away from the apartment complex and getting into the vehicle at 1230 a.m. He was the first to suggest that the vehicle looked like an SUV and nobody seemed to consider that it was Sheila's car, but when you look at the still from the footage, it looks like it could very likely be a silver sedan, which would match what Sheila drove. They also confirmed that Sheila picked up Skylar at 11pm, but they never rolled the footage back to see if Skylar actually left the apartment at that time. They wouldn't have been able to find any footage of Skylar leaving at that time because there wasn't any. Either way, since Skylar was seen willingly getting into a vehicle, state police determined that she wasn't abducted and classified her as a runaway. Due to that, they wouldn't issue an Amber Alert. I guess the idea that Skylar might have willingly got into the vehicle but then wasn't allowed out never really occurred to the police. They didn't seem to care that Skylar had left her cell phone charger, contact lens case, and contact lens solution at home. She also left the window open a crack and left a stool outside so she could get back in the window. Seems like an odd thing to do if she was running away and not planning on coming back. The case was eventually taken over by Officer Jessica Colbank, who handled most of the missing juvenile cases in the area. She was always suspicious of Sheila. She wondered why she had dropped Skylar off a block away when she admitted to picking her up right in front of her apartment building. She also noticed that she made no attempts at communication with Skylar. One of her best friends goes missing and she doesn't call, text, or reach out on social media begging for her to come home. There was a bunch of text and call activity between Skylar, Sheila, and Rachel up until about midnight the night of July 5th. And then Skylar just stopped being part of the communications. Sheila also had regular activity on Twitter, but never tweeted to Skylar or mentioned her in any of her tweets. When Officer Colbank questioned Sheila about why she hadn't even mentioned Skylar on social media, she just started crying and said she missed her friend. A few hours later, Sheila retweeted two tweets about Skylar's disappearance. What a coincidence. When the officer took a look at Sheila's car, she realized that it could be the same car that was in the surveillance video. When she took over the case, she went through the footage and to her it looked like a light-colored sedan. The FBI also didn't believe that Skylar had run away and they got involved in the case pretty quickly. Eventually, Officer Colbank and FBI Special Agent Morgan Spurlock, not that Morgan Spurlock, requested surveillance footage from a couple of local businesses to see if they could get a better look at the vehicle from the apartment surveillance. While they waited for that, they looked around the area looking for any other light-colored sedans. They also finally interviewed Rachel, who had left on a trip to the beach with her mother the same day they killed Skylar and then went to a church camp for two weeks when she returned officer colebank and special agent spurlock grilled her about exactly what they did the night Skylar went missing rachel gave the same vague story about driving around and then dropping skyler off a block away from her apartment when they asked her exactly where they drove around her answers were inconsistent they knew that she was lying but they couldn't get anything more out of her it's likely that the pressure from this interview put even more weight on Rachel who was already carrying a heavy mental load. Jessica Colbank suspected that Sheila and Rachel were involved in Skylar's disappearance from pretty early on in the case. But Dave and Mary didn't believe her. They said that Skylar's best friends would never do anything to hurt her and even told her to stop harassing them. Officer Colbank asked them not to share any information about the ongoing investigation with either girl, but they brushed her off. Colbank noticed that every time she saw Sheila, the girl would ask for information about the case. What have you found? Did you find anything new? She always wanted information, but like any good police investigator, Officer Colbank never gave her details, because to her, Sheila was a suspect but Sheila also fished for information from Dave and Mary, who saw her as a grieving friend and would tell her whatever she wanted to know. This wasn't an entirely popular opinion, though. There were no shortage of rumors about what had happened to Skylar, but a lot of other youths in the area believed that Sheila and Rachel were somehow involved. On August 7th, one month after Skylar disappeared, 16-year-old Elise Nix was reported missing. Police took the report and feared there was a serial killer in the area. It could not be a coincidence that two 16-year-old girls would go missing a month apart. As everybody prepared for the worst, Elise showed up and it turned out she was just staying at a friend's house. This is the typical outcome for a missing person's report. The person is usually found within 24 hours. Though authorities and locals were relieved that they wouldn't be searching for two missing girls,
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: On August 16th, the new school year started, and every student was buzzing with rumors about what had happened to Skylar. Many students believed that Sheila and Rachel were involved. Skylar's longtime friend, Daniel Havater, had drama class with Rachel, and he continually pressured her to tell the truth about what happened to their friend. She would tell him the same thing over and over. They drove around for a little bit, and then they dropped her off. Daniel didn't believe her, though, and he told her he didn't believe her, and he would continue to tell her that for the next few months. As Rachel struggled with the gravity of what she had done, more and more weight was added to what was pulling her down. She continued to stick to her story, but she didn't know how much longer she could last. If it wasn't Daniel pressuring her to talk, it was the police. Officer Colbank and Special Agent Spurlock, along with two state police investigators, got warrants to take her and Sheila's phones and interviewed them both at the school. Then they searched both of their houses. It wasn't the cell phones themselves that proved they were lying, but once the cell phone records came in, it revealed that Sheila and Rachel couldn't have been driving around with Skylar from 11 to 11.45 because they were texting and calling each other from different locations at that time. It took investigators months to finally figure out that they should go back in the apartment surveillance and check to see if Sheila had picked Skylar up at 11 o'clock. Of course, the video showed nothing. It didn't show Skylar leaving, and it didn't show Sheila's car arriving. Police knew the girls were lying, but they didn't know what they were lying about. They theorized that they had done drugs and Skylar might have overdosed, but that was only speculation. At the beginning of December, Rachel had another interview with authorities, but this time she said they actually dropped Skylar off at a boy's house in Blacksville and not a block from her apartment. Sheila came in and also had another interview the same day, but she didn't know that Rachel had changed her story, so she maintained that they had dropped Skylar off a block from her apartment. The detective didn't reveal that Rachel had given him a different story and allowed Sheila to leave. Unsurprisingly, Sheila called the next day and let him know that she had lied and they had dropped Skylar off at a boys' house in Blacksville. She had obviously found out that Rachel had changed her story and had to call and get on the same page. Then they changed their story again and claimed that they had gone out to the Brave Bridge to smoke pot and Skylar suddenly ran off into the woods. A 16-year-old honor student with no problems at home and no history of mental illness just ran off into the woods. They claimed that they spent hours looking for her before finally leaving. Like every other criminal in the history of, well, crime, repeatedly changing their story didn't make authorities believe them anymore. It was actually the opposite. Changing their story multiple times made them seem less believable. Funny how that works. This caused the police to schedule both Sheila and Rachel for polygraph tests. Sheila's was first, and she failed. Twice. Of course, a polygraph can't be used in court, but it did show that Sheila was likely hiding something and this would hopefully push her to tell the truth. When it was Rachel's turn to take a polygraph, her father was driving her to the police station when she jumped out of the car and ran off down the street. She made her way to Tara's office and hid from her parents and the police. When she finally turned up, she had been picked up by Tara and she was with her and Sheila. Police became frustrated at how much Tara did to shield both of the girls from having to tell the truth. Obviously, any parent is going to try to protect their child when they're being accused of a crime, but Tara's behavior went beyond that. She seemed to aid Sheila in whatever she wanted to do and that behavior extended to Rachel even picking her up and keeping her from taking a polygraph. It was telling that when Rachel jumped from her car and ran off, the first place that she went that she felt safe was to Tara's office. Rachel never did take a polygraph. From the day she helped murder Skylar niece, she started to break. Slowly but surely, as more and more stress was piled on top of her, Daniel harassing her to tell the truth, people at school calling her a murderer, the police investigating. It became too much to handle. The final straw came a few days after Christmas when Rachel's parents announced that her father, Rusty, was going to move back in with her and Patricia. Rachel used to be able to go to her father's house to get a break from her mother, but now they would all be under the same roof. They told Rachel that Rusty was sick and needed to move in for help, but they had made that story up to try to keep her away from Sheila. Rusty lived closer to Sheila, and Rachel would escape to his house but would really spend all of her time with her. When Rachel realized what was going on, she had a complete breakdown. She stood in the driveway screaming, quote, You've ruined my life! at both of her parents. They managed to get their daughter into the house, but her meltdown only escalated. She punched Patricia and knocked both her and Rusty down the stairs during the struggle. Patricia called 911 and Rachel ran into her bedroom, locking the door and putting a dresser in front of it. Then she continued screaming, you've ruined my life, I'm going to kill myself. When police arrived, Patricia wanted them to arrest her daughter, but they suggested that she and Rusty take her to the hospital and have her admitted for psychiatric treatment. On December 28, 2012, Rachel was admitted to the Chestnut Ridge Center for inpatient treatment. She was scheduled for an interview with the FBI on December 29th, but Patricia called them to let them know she wouldn't make it. When they learned the reason, they told her that she needed to bring Rachel directly to them as soon as she was released. They didn't want her to have any time to connect with Sheila and be manipulated. When Rachel was released from the center on January 3rd, Patricia and Rusty took their daughter straight to be interviewed by the FBI. When she sat down in the interview room, She was ready to tell the truth, and the investigators could tell. They knew that they were finally going to find out what happened to Skylar, what kind of horrible accident happened, and how the two girls had covered it up. There were running theories that there was a drug overdose, or that they were messing around and Sheila slipped and hit her head. Every investigator in the building knew that these girls were involved somehow, but they thought that involvement was covering up an accident. They sat in the interview room and watched Rachel take a deep breath as they prepared to hear what had happened to Skylar. We stabbed her. The investigators in the room were speechless. Out of everything that could have come out of the young redhead's mouth, not a single one of them expected that. One investigator clarified, quote, Are you saying you killed Skylar?" Rachel nodded yes. Then she told him exactly what had happened in the early morning hours of July 6th she described the plan and the attack she explained that skylar had gotten a hold of the knife and managed to cut her on the ankle then she pulled up her pants leg and showed them the three inch scar on the side of her leg she told them where they went how they killed her and how they cleaned up when they asked her why she and sheila killed her she simply said quote, we just didn't like her rachel agreed to lead police to skylar's body in exchange for a plea deal There was too much snow on the ground and they had to wait until the snow melted to conduct the search. In the meantime, Rachel agreed to record Sheila saying something incriminating. Later that day, the police let Rachel go home and had her parents leave the house. Then Rachel invited Sheila over. Sheila was dying to see Rachel. She hadn't been able to talk to her at all during the five days she was in Chestnut Ridge and she honestly needed to know if she had said anything while she was there. While inside, officers sat in unmarked cars outside and listened, but Sheila didn't say anything incriminating. Despite the failed effort, they got new warrants to take all of the knives from Sheila's house as well as to impound her car. When the car was searched, traces of blood were found in the trunk. Then, the U.S. Attorney's Office ordered them to be homeschooled in order to protect other students at the school. They couldn't corroborate Rachel's story until they were able to search for Skylar's body. Sheila's world was crumbling around her, but she would continue to maintain her innocence. Authorities were finally able to search for Skylar's body on January 16th. They brought out a cadaver dog, and it wasn't long before Skylar's remains were located under a pile of rocks and debris on the side of a gravel road. An autopsy was performed, and the wounds all matched what Rachel had confessed. She was even given a polygraph to prove she was telling the truth and passed. Rachel's confession was confirmed and now the police needed to build a case against Sheila Eddy. Rachel turned herself in on May 1st and she pleaded guilty to one count of second-degree murder the same day. When she was done being processed, police arrested Sheila and charged her with kidnapping, first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. On her way to the detention center, she complained to the investigators that her hair was a mess. She said, quote, I have to look right when we get there. She was on her way to jail for stabbing her friend to death and she was worried about her hair. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to Sheila Eddy. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU, is a special team of agents who work to profile killers. Their work has been instrumental in catching several serial killers by using their behavior to put together a profile that will help narrow down their possible perpetrators. The BAU examined communications by both Rachel and Sheila and determined that Rachel fit the behavior patterns of a sociopath and Sheila would be considered a psychopath. The courts weren't allowed to reveal anything about Rachel or Sheila since they were minors, but that changed on September 4th, 2013, when a judge transferred Sheila's case from juvenile to adult criminal court. On September 17th, she was arraigned where she pleaded not guilty to the charges brought against her. Despite everything that was going against her, she still believed that she could manipulate her way out of this. For the rest of the year, her defense lawyer reviewed documents but would say he, quote, "...found negligible, if any, basis to develop a defense." Her own lawyer was having a hard time finding anything that he could use to help Sheila refute the charges. Rachel was a strong witness. There was circumstantial evidence and she was just plain and simple, not a sympathetic defendant. She lied compulsively throughout the investigation and had zero credibility. At a hearing on January 24, 2014, Sheila changed her plea to guilty on all charges. She finally admitted to what she had done, but she didn't say anything else. Most disappointing was that she wouldn't explain why she had done it. Everybody knew that she was the mastermind and Rachel was the follower, so why did she want Skylar dead? The only answer anyone would ever get was that they didn't like her or that they didn't want to be friends with her anymore. So you murdered her? Many believe it's because they were afraid that Schuyler would reveal their lesbian relationship. I admit that I'll never know what it's like to be outed when you aren't ready to be, but I hope I'm not out of line thinking that it's not worth murdering someone over. Sheila Eddy was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 15 years. Since she had turned 18 by the time of her sentence, she was ordered to be sent to adult prison. On February 26, 2014, Rachel Schoaf was sentenced to 30 years in prison with parole eligibility after 10 years. She was also ordered to serve her sentence in adult prison to be transferred after her 18th birthday. Rachel's next parole hearing is next year, and the West Virginia Department of Corrections lists her projected release date as April 30, 2028. Sheila's next parole date is in 2028, but her projected release date is listed as the year 3000. After Schuyler's murder, West Virginia legislators introduced Schuyler's Law, which drastically changed the rules for when an Amber Alert could be issued. Originally, four rules had to apply in order for the state police to issue an Amber Alert 1. A child is believed to be abducted. 2. The child is under 18. Three, the child may be in danger of death or serious injury. Four, there is sufficient information to indicate the Amber Alert would be helpful. Also, state police had imposed a waiting period of 48 hours before a teenager could be considered missing. Why on earth would you want to wait two days before you start looking for a missing teenager? And what good would an Amber Alert do two days later? It makes no fucking sense. This idea that you could waste resources by looking for a teenager who actually ran away is bullshit. If anybody is missing, you go look for them right away. Plain and simple. In Skyler's case, video footage showed her willingly getting into a vehicle so the state police didn't consider her abducted. The new law changed the rules, so state police would issue immediate public announcements when any child is reported missing and in danger, regardless of whether or not the child is believed to have been kidnapped. Sheila Eddy didn't know a world where she didn't get what she wanted. In this case, she wanted Skylar dead, but it's unlikely anyone will know the actual reason. Was she afraid that her sexual relationship with Rachel would be revealed? Was she so shallow that she didn't want to be friends with Skylar anymore so she decided killing her would be the best option? Or was she just so much of a psychopath that she didn't really actually have a reason? She just wanted to kill her. Rachel was a follower in the plan, but her morals were so weak that she went along with it. They may not have been equals in planning the murder, but they're both equally monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operates the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.